We turn in sacred scripture this evening to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. And we read the first 17 verses. We continue in our series, Glimpses into the Heart of Jesus. And we kind of merge this series as we approach uh, Good Friday and Easter Sunday. So that's what brings us here to John chapter 13. The text is verses 1 through 11. I will not reread that, but it will be profitable to keep our Bibles open to this passage. John chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And you can kind of read that as the introduction to these next chapters. And supper being ended, or simply it being supper time, supper being served, we could also say, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God and went to God, he riseth from supper and laid aside his garments, and took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do, thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus saith to him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, ye are not all clean. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, Happy are ye if ye do them. So far we read God's holy and infallible word. The text, as I said, is verses 1 through 11. 
Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, if the heart of your Savior Jesus Christ is anything, it is this. It is the heart of a servant. Now that is an astonishing thought. We know who we are as the servants of Jesus. We just had a sermon on that this morning. We are stewards serving the good master. And that itself is a glorious wonder. But this is an altogether glorious and wondrous thought that our Savior has a servant's heart towards us. It's exactly what we need, but it is still truly a wonder. And this is a a truth that is emphasized over and over again. Just think of what Jesus said in his earthly ministry. He said, I came not to be ministered unto, but I came to minister. I came not to be served, but I came to serve. Think of the book of Isaiah with all its many references to the suffering servant. Jesus is a servant. He is the suffering servant. Think about what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus took upon himself the form of a servant and became obedient even unto death. And this gets at the heart of everything that Jesus is. Jesus' heart is a heart that loves to serve. As Jesus himself taught his disciples, it is more blessed to give than to receive. This was Jesus' own attitude. This was the the posture of Jesus' own heart. He loved serving for his people's salvation. He loved his people and he loved them unto the end. And that's true for you, beloved. However sad your circumstances in life are, however challenging, whatever you're going through, remember this. You have a Savior in heaven who is doing all things serving you. We can't fathom it. We don't understand it. But this is who He is. He is the one who sees to it that all things are subservient to our salvation. That's the reality we see in His death on the cross. And that's the reality we know by faith still today. Jesus' heart is the heart of a servant. And now as you get closer and closer to Jesus' death on the cross, that's what you see even more. It's like He's showing us more and more, slideshow after slideshow. He's one who serves. He's one who serves. He's one who serves. That's what we're going to see in these next few weeks as we get closer to Good Friday and and Easter Sunday. We're going to continue our series, Glimpses into the Heart of Jesus, but we're going to merge this also with the season that's before us. Uh, We're going to look at a few passages that lead us to Jesus' death on the cross, passages that really show us in unique ways the heart of Jesus. That's what we have in the passage before us this evening. This passage is so full of instruction that we're going to spend two sermons on this passage. This evening, we're going to look at the first 11 verses, and then next week, Lord willing, we will look at verses 12 through 17. We take as our theme, the heart of a servant, part one. And we have three points under that theme. First, a heart shown in foot washing. Second, the symbolism of this foot washing. And then third, the humbling lesson for us. So here in John chapter 13, it is the Thursday of the Passion Week. 
Remember, children, the word passion means suffering. This is the week of Jesus' suffering. The week started with Jesus' triumphal entry riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. On Monday, Jesus cleansed the temple and he cursed the barren fig tree. On Tuesday, he spent the whole day instructing the people, teaching in parables, all kinds of instruction. On Wednesday, Jesus spent the day privately with his disciples. And now it is Thursday. It is Thursday night in the passage before us, the night before Jesus' death on the cross. And Thursday night was very special because it's on this night that the Passover meal is celebrated. And actually, if you remember how the Jews kept time, they started their day at 6 o'clock at night, right? First the evening and then the morning. So the day started at 6 o'clock at night. So this passage before us, we could say is, is it's Thursday night, but it's, it's the beginning of the last day of Jesus' earthly life. And it's, it's really the beginning of the Passover feast, Jesus is going to have the Passover on this day in the evening, and then the next morning, he's actually going to fulfill the Passover himself by being the Passover lamb that is slain on the cross. Well, earlier in the day, Jesus instructed his disciples, Peter and John, to make the upper room ready, to prepare the Passover meal. And preparing the Passover meal would have involved going to Jerusalem, purchasing a lamb, bringing it to the temple, slaying it, having the priest collect the blood, and then pour the blood on the altar. Then Peter and John would have taken that lamb that had been slain to the upper room and roast it in preparation for eating it. And that would have taken some time and work. In getting things ready for the Passover meal, Peter and John were also to make sure that there was enough wine that there was unleavened bread, and that there was bitter sauce, because all these things were part of the Passover meal. They would have also had to make sure that in the upper room, by the door, there was uh, a wash basin, there was some water, and there was a towel laid out. So that when the disciples entered the upper room that night, their feet could be washed. These were the ordinary things that would have been set out in preparation for the Passover meal. Well, later on that day, at night, when the time came to observe the Passover feast, Jesus and his disciples would have made the trek from Bethany to Jerusalem and to the large upper room. And that was a trek of some two miles, nearly two miles. And because the disciples wore sandals for shoes, and because they were walking on dusty roads, their feet would have gotten dirty as they made the trip. By the time the disciples entered the upper room, their feet would have been in need of a foot washing. A foot washing might have been especially needed because of how Jesus and his disciples were going to partake of the Lord's Supper. They would not be sitting around a normal table on chairs like we would think today. Remember, they would be sitting on couches. They would be reclining so that their feet were even at the same level as their faces. And so maybe it was especially important to wash their feet. And ordinarily, the owner of the place would have supplied a servant or a slave who had, would have performed this demeaning task of washing the dirty feet of the disciples. And obviously, on this occasion, when Jesus and his disciples entered the upper room, there was no such servant present. 
Well, as we look at this event this evening, there's something else that we need to bring into this passage that we learned from Luke's account in Luke 22. From Luke's account in Luke 22, verse 24, we learn that it was around this time, probably even around the time that the disciples started making that trek from Bethany to Jerusalem, all the way even to the time when they were gathered around on those couches in the upper room, there was an intense discussion taking place. And there was even an argument among the disciples over which one was the greatest of the disciples. In Luke 22, verse 24, we read this, And there was also a strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest. This is probably the topic that occupied their conversation even as they journeyed from Bethany to the upper room in Jerusalem. After all, this was a favorite topic of discussion for the disciples throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. They liked to talk about how they ranked as the disciples of Jesus. And you can imagine that even as they arrived in Jerusalem and started filing into the upper room, that they were still arguing over which was the greatest. And why would the disciples have been arguing amongst themselves over who was the greatest? Well, maybe some of the disciples had become envious of the special role that Jesus had given to Peter and John, giving them that special task of preparing the Passover lamb for the meal. Why do they get to do that special work and not me? Or maybe it was this. Maybe the disciples were arguing over the seating arrangement when they got to the upper room. Maybe they were arguing over who was going to sit next to Jesus in the upper room, right? That special spot. I get to sit beside Jesus. No, I'm greater than you. I should get to sit beside Jesus because I'm the greatest. You can almost imagine that as the disciples entered the upper room, they were even tempted to scurry, the jostle for position, and scurry across the room to those couches, to those chairs, as fast as they could in order to get the best spot in the room. Or at least not get the lowest spot, right? But now here is suddenly the situation that they find themselves in. They arrive at the upper room, they start filing into the room, but there's no servant there to wash their dirty feet. There's the basin, there's the water, there's the towel, but where's the servant to wash their feet? And here's the thing, congregation, it's worth emphasizing that this job of washing feet was such a low and menial task that it was reserved for servants, it was reserved for slaves. And apparently this job was considered such a degrading task, such a humiliating job, that a Jew could not even force his own Jewish slave to do the work. Apparently, a Jew could only force his Gentile slave to do this work. This job was too demeaning for a Jewish slave. Only a Gentile slave could do it. Or congregation, just think of this. Think of the words that John the Baptist spoke when he wanted to express just how much greater Jesus was than he. Children, you remember those words that John the Baptist said? He put it this way. I am not even worthy to stoop down on my knees and unlatch his sandals. And what John the Baptist was saying was that he was not even worthy to serve as Jesus' slave, to serve as Jesus' Gentile slave, to take off his sandals in order to wash his dirty, sweaty feet. Because that's how much greater Jesus was than he. That's the point. This task was the lowest of the lowest jobs that even a servant could be given. 
And yet when the disciples enter the upper room, there is no servant to wash their feet. And so what happens? Well, as the disciples start piling into the upper room, maybe still striving over who is the greatest, well, the first ones who enter the room don't get their feet washed. And as the other disciples start entering the room, they they keep getting pushed further and further into the room, away from the wash basin, without getting their feet washed. And no one volunteers. No one takes the initiative to stoop down, fill that wash basin with water, and start washing the feet of the other disciples. Eventually, they all just find themselves seated around the table without anyone having his feet washed. And so you can imagine it. There are all the disciples sitting down on their couches and looking around at each other, inwardly wondering who's going to be the one to get up and wash everyone's feet. And maybe they are scanning each other to to see who actually got the best seats in the room. Oh, there's John, there's Judas Iscariot, and they're thinking to themselves, well, it's not going to be me. I'm not going to stoop so low, maybe give up my spot, And to do that lowly, dirty work. After all, I may not be the greatest of the disciples, but I'm not the lowest of the disciples either, am I? Perhaps these disciples were, were waiting to see which one would finally accept that label of being the least of the disciples. And as for Peter and John, maybe they were thinking that, well, they had done quite enough work already today. They had prepared the Passover meal. Someone else can do the foot washing. No one was willing to be the volunteer. But then what happens? As the disciples are scanning each other over, suddenly their gaze shifts to Jesus Christ. Because what do they see? Suddenly they see Jesus himself getting up. And without saying a word, he starts taking off his clothes. That's what we read in verse 4. He riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. Maybe it was that that nice expensive robe that the soldiers would cast lots for the next morning. Maybe in today's language, we could put it this way. Jesus takes off his suit jacket. He takes off his tie. He even unbuttons his dress shirt, takes his dress shirt off. He takes off his dress shoes. He even takes off his pants. He strips himself down so that he's not even wearing much at all. And then he takes that long towel that has been set out beside the basin of water And he wraps that towel around his waist. And the way that he puts it around his waist, he is looking exactly like a slave. Children, think of of an oriental slave or think of an Egyptian slave who is wearing nothing but a long towel wrapped around his waist. You see, that's exactly what Jesus looks like. That's the image he takes upon himself here in the upper room. And then he wraps that towel around his waist in just like the way that the slave would so that one end of that towel is available. It's loose. It's it's available so that after he washes the disciples' dirty feet, he can take that towel and dry those feet nicely. And that's exactly what Jesus does. In verse 5, we read, After that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Jesus goes from one disciple to the next as they are still sitting there on their couches. He He puts the wash basin right under the feet of the first disciple. He carefully unlatches their sandal. He takes off their dirty, dusty sandals. 
he dips his hands into that water in the wash basin. He carries the water to the feet and he starts washing those dirty, sweaty, stinky feet with his hands. And when those feet are clean, he gets that towel, he wipes those feet dry with his towel, and he moves on to the next disciple. And you can imagine that the whole room is suddenly filled with silence. No one even dares speak out. How do you react to this? And then Jesus gets to Peter. And when Jesus gets to Peter, Peter looks at him and says in astonishment, Lord, Master, dost thou wash my feet? And Jesus says, what I do, thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. And Peter says to Jesus, thou shalt never wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. In typical Peter fashion, Peter says, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. And Jesus says, Peter, it is enough that your feet be washed. And Jesus finishes washing Peter's feet, and he moves on, and he washes all the disciples' feet, even the feet of Judas Iscariot. And when he finishes washing all his disciples' feet, he puts the wash basin back where he got it, he puts his normal clothes back on, and he takes his place once again at the head of the table. Isn't that amazing? Just remember who this is, beloved. This is Jesus. This isn't just the President of the United States. This isn't just the, the King of England getting on his knees and washing someone else's clean feet. No, this is your God. This is the maker of heaven and earth who has come in the flesh, the Word made flesh, who is there in the upper room, stooping down to wash the dirty, stinky, sweaty feet of these bickering, proud, sinful disciples. This is the Lord of lords and King of kings, looking like an oriental slave, doing the menial work of a Gentile servant. Peter sees it. Peter understands just how inappropriate and unbecoming all this is. That the master should be washing his disciples' feet. And Peter can't even fathom how this is happening. To use the language of 1 Peter 5 verse 5, this is our Savior quite literally being clothed with humility. And what does the passage itself emphasize? It emphasizes this, that Jesus did all these things knowingly. Look at verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He was come from God and went to God, riseth from supper. And that meaning in verse 3 could be taken uh, a number of ways. It certainly means this, that Jesus washed His disciples' feet in the consciousness, in the awareness that He was the only begotten Son of God. He washed his disciples' feet in the consciousness that he was the greatest of all and in the consciousness that he should be the one being served rather than the one serving. But nevertheless, he served. It could be taken that way. I think these words should also be taken this way. They should include this idea that Jesus washed his disciples' feet perfectly aware of what God's will was for him as the Christ. 
He knew why God had sent him to the earth. He knew what God's will was for him, and he knew what God's will was for him right now and in this day, this last day that has just begun, the last day of his earthly life. God's will, he knew that God's will was for him to minister and not be ministered unto. And he knew God's will for him was that in the next 24 hours, he would offer up his life for the sins of his people. Knowing all these things, and knowing what was before him also, that he had come from God and was going to God, knowing all these things in perfect, astounding humility and in perfect obedience to God, as the Christ, Jesus gets up, rises from supper, and washes the feet of his disciples. He knows this is God's will for him, that God has put this before him right now to be the servant of his people right here, right now. That even this foot washing is something God has put before him as part of his humiliation. All that humiliation that is leading him to the cross. To put it another way, to use the language now of verse 1, we could say this. This act of Jesus getting up and washing his disciples' feet is also Jesus expressing his determination, his resolve to love his people unto the end. This act of Jesus washing his disciples' feet is Jesus now showing himself at the beginning of this last day that he is willing to do anything to humble himself to the lowest degree for the sake of his people. It is an expression of Jesus' deep love for his people that he would wash them clean no matter how low he must humble himself. And he would in love also teach them and show them in this moment what real leadership and what real greatness in his kingdom looks like. This is the heart of Jesus. This is the heart of a servant. That's where we come now to the symbolism that's contained in this foot washing. Looking at this event, very fascinating. Let's look at the symbolism. What does this event mean? And to put it in a nutshell, Jesus' foot washing was a sign of what Jesus was going to do on the cross. And that comes out especially in Jesus' interaction with Peter in verse 7 and verse 8 and, and, and onwards. In verses 7 and 8, we read, Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. So it's clear from what Jesus says that there is a connection here between this physical washing of the disciples' feet and Jesus' work on the cross. And that connection is this. Just as Jesus poured water into a wash basin in order that he might, as a servant, wash his disciples' feet from all their dirt and filth, just so in less than 24 hours, Jesus will shed his blood on the cross in order that he might, as a servant, wash them from all their sins. Or to put it in a slightly different way, and to explain what's going on in this interaction between Jesus and Peter, we could put it this way. In this event of Jesus washing his disciples' feet, what Peter is seeing is only the part of it. It's only part of what Jesus is going to do And it's not the whole of what Jesus is doing. That is, 
Peter is thinking of only what's happening right here, right now in the moment, this physical foot washing. Peter doesn't know what's coming in the next 24 hours. We, of course, know what's going to happen. Peter doesn't know what's going to happen. But Jesus understands that this foot washing is only part and parcel of a much larger humiliation that Jesus is entering into at this moment and that he will have to experience on behalf of his disciples. This foot washing is only a beginning of a much larger humiliation, uh, a humiliation that's going to include much deeper humiliation in the hours that lie ahead. From Judas, whose feet Jesus washed, from Judas betraying Jesus with a kiss, to Jesus being tried before the Sanhedrin, to, to Jesus being mocked by the soldiers, being crucified on the cross, and even then to the, that extreme humiliation of suffering the agonies of hell for his people. In a sense, it all starts here. Right here, right now, with Jesus taking the initiative, getting down on his knees to wash his disciples' feet. Jesus is saying something. Something that's going over the disciples' head. But something that God sees and knows. Jesus is saying, let the humiliation begin. Let this day begin. This last day of my earthly ministry, which has been reserved from before the foundations of the world as the day for my utter and extreme humiliation, let this day begin. I willingly, as the suffering servant, take it upon myself. And the day starts here with this foot washing. What, what a poignant way to start off this day. A day that will end with Jesus stripped naked even of that towel, and a day that will end ultimately with his death and his burial in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. In a sense, this foot washing it is a snapshot, really, of what Jesus' whole life is about. Lord willing, that's what we're going to look at next week. But this foot washing encapsulates the entirety of why Jesus came to the earth. He came to serve. He came to wash his people clean. And so when Jesus says, Peter, if I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Jesus is, as it were, saying, Peter, if you don't have a share in this small humiliation that I experience for you now in washing your dirty feet, this merely external act, which is but little, if you are not a partaker of this small act of my humiliation now, then how shall you share in my much larger, my greater humiliation on your behalf when I am suffering and dying for you on the cross in these next 24 hours? If Peter was not willing to allow Jesus that partial humiliation of washing his feet, if Peter, if Peter can't embrace Jesus as he looks like an Egyptian slave right here, right now in the upper room, how is Peter going to embrace that full and complete humiliation that will be Jesus' agonizing death on the cross the very next day? In a sense, Peter himself still needs to learn this vital lesson in humility, that except Jesus washes Peter from his sin, Peter has no part in him. And Peter still needs to learn his place, right? He's going to deny his Savior this self-same night. And he's going to, be, he's going to have to go through that, that, that terrible fall 
He's not there yet. He still needs to learn that he is the one who is dirty and filthy and stinky. And he needs to learn that only Jesus, only his Lord and Master can wash him clean. No one else is willing to do it, right? And no one else can do it. No one else has the power or the grace to do what Peter needs. And Peter still needs to humble himself before this awesome reality that he needs to be served by Jesus. And just as that was true for Peter, that's our reality too, beloved. If we cannot submit to the truth that we need a thorough washing away of all our sins, which can be provided for us only through the suffering of the suffering servant, Jesus, on the cross of Calvary, then we have no part in Jesus. We need to recognize that being a Christian does not begin with me being a servant of Jesus. Rather, being a Christian is recognizing that Jesus has first become my servant in order to wash away my sin. And that takes, that takes utter humility to acknowledge that fact that I needed the Almighty God Himself to take upon Himself the lowly form of a servant garbed in a towel and furthermore, even less, in order to be saved from my sin. Truly, only when I acknowledge and embrace that reality and, and, and humble myself before that can I begin to live a truly humble life in my relationships with others in the church. That's how it was for the 12 disciples. Who's going to budge? No, you first need to humble yourselves and see Jesus. And then, and then, Jesus working in you, you, you will be ready to serve one another in the church, washing each other's feet. I can't wash myself of my sins. We can't wash ourselves. No other person can do it for us. Only if our Lord himself does it. The one who is none other than the only begotten Son of God, whose glory we have seen, who's full of grace and truth, only if He does it can it be done. And except Jesus washes clean with His blood, we have no part in Jesus. That's humbling, congregation. Because that highlights to you and me just how desperate, just how miserable our situation was. This takes away all our pride. No one and nothing but God himself could do what we needed done. And it's humbling too because, because this is our king. This is what it took my own glorious king to save me. If the king had to endure such humiliation for me, that's not just humiliation for the king, that's also humiliation for the ones who serve the king. That's my Lord, my glorious king. The one I boast in all the day long. And there he is. And Peter can hardly handle it. Washing my feet. And there he is the next day. Stretching his arms across that beam. Dying for my sins. That's humbling. Because that's my king. Saving me. But that's how it is, beloved. Nothing but the blood. 
Nothing but the righteousness and perfect obedience of Jesus Christ can save us from our sin. Nothing depends on us. Just as nothing depends on Peter, everything depends on Jesus. And when we are washed, and when the king then rises from death as victor over death, and you see him arrayed in his glory, then you see his glory indeed. And then you see that the glory goes to him and to God and God alone. That's all part of it too, beloved. I think we'll see that next week as well. Well, that's part of what Jesus is saying. That's verses 7 and 8, Jesus' interaction with Peter. But perhaps a word of explanation needs to be given with regard to what Jesus goes on to say in verse 10. In verses 9 and 10, we read, Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus saith to him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, needeth not except to have his feet washed, but is clean every whit. And ye are clean, but not all. Well, what is Jesus saying there in verse 10? It is a little challenging. What Jesus is teaching is another important truth. And again, he's using a figure. In this verse, what Jesus is actually saying is this. A person who has taken a bath before leaving for supper, he doesn't need to take another bath when he arrives at the supper or at the banqueting hall because he's already taken a bath. Right? He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet. Only his feet need to be washed, and then he is clean. You can imagine that, I imagined at least, that the disciples in Bethany must have showered and, and groomed themselves and prepared themselves for the Passover meal, right? They took a bath, and then they walked to Jerusalem. And what Jesus means is this. That's how it is spiritually. Spiritually, there is first the thorough and complete washing of regeneration. In the moment you are regenerated and you are united to Christ, you are justified. Your sins are forgiven. You are righteous in God's sight, in Christ, through faith. You have a thorough cleansing. This is your justification. That cleansing is once accomplished forever, so to speak. It does not need to be repeated. You've been washed. You've had the bath, you might say. Yet, Jesus says, there's also another washing, which follows the washing of regeneration, which follows justification. And that washing is the washing of sanctification. As you walk through life as a believer, even though you are righteous in Christ, you've been washed in the blood, you still commit sin. You still get your feet dirty, as it were. And so every day, you need your feet washed. You need that washing of sanctification. And the point Jesus is making is simply this. If you are regenerated, and if you are clean in Jesus Christ, and then you commit sin... Don't think that you need to make a fresh beginning of a religious life every single time you commit sin. No, because the seed of regeneration remains within you. You remain in Christ. You are justified. You are clean in that sense. Always. Yes, your feet still get dirty. You still sin. And you still stand in need of having your feet washed and of having that daily reminder that your sins are forgiven and you are righteous. But don't start thinking as if every time you sin, you lose your salvation, you fall out of Jesus Christ, and you need to get saved again every time you sin. Jesus says, he that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And that's a great comfort to God's people. When I sin, 
I'm still a child of God. And then Jesus says, and ye are clean. Jesus says, you are justified in Jesus Christ. You have been washed. You have had that bath before coming here. You are clean. You have been washed with the washing of regeneration. You just need your feet washed. But then Jesus says, and ye are clean, but not all. And of course, that's a reference to Judas Iscariot, who although had his feet, his physical feet cleaned, yet he was not a partaker of that washing of regeneration. He was not a regenerated child of God, and that's why Judas was not clean, even though his feet were washed. So this foot washing is a sign of what Jesus was going to do on the cross the next day, washing away the sins of his people, going into even deeper humiliation in his sufferings on the cross. As we finish looking at this passage this evening, there's a lesson that we need to take home with us. Maybe it's a simple lesson, but it's an important lesson. It's a lesson that we need to understand as we turn to this passage again next week, Lord willing, and and look at the example Jesus gives us to follow. And that lesson is this. Humility, humility, humility. Humility stands as a defining characteristic of the kingdom of God. Unless we participate in Jesus' humiliation, unless we acknowledge that we need Him to serve us and wash us clean of all our sins, we have no share in Him. And that is an exercise in humility. A humility that in the end, only God's grace can work within us. Nothing of my works, nothing of myself can cancel any of my sins before God in Jesus' blood alone can they be washed. And you see, congregation, that humility is why Judas Iscariot could barely stand being in Jesus' presence any longer. He couldn't stomach this any longer. This is the king? This is the one I'm supposed to call Lord and Savior? This man dressed as a slave, washing dirty feet? Even I wouldn't do that. This is too much. That's why, that's why if the foot washing is a stumbling block, then you can understand how his death on the cross is a stumbling block and a rock of offense. Because this humility of Jesus is offensive to the natural man. And yet, congregation, for you and me who are washed in Jesus Christ, if we know our sins and we know who we are, then this is exactly what we glory in. This is exactly where I hide myself and take my comfort. Jesus became this servant for me. Jesus has a heart of a servant for me. And he's always my serving Lord and my serving King. Thanks be to God for Jesus. Thanks be to God for the heart Jesus has, the heart of a servant for us. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we love looking at thy Son, Jesus Christ. We thank thee for him. 
We thank Thee for revealing these things to us. We thank Thee for the washing that we have in Him. And we pray, Lord, that this passage might shape our hearts, our hearts. That we might follow our Savior. We pray that we might also see Him be decked in glory, still serving for us. May that be a comfort to us and further provoke us to live as his faithful servants. In thy son's holy name we pray, amen.